If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to meet me in Hebrews chapter 13. This is our last chapter in Hebrews. Once we get through this chapter, then uh, we're going to start a new series coming up. Um, I believe we're going uh, to do one on the gospel and the nations, and then we're going to start into the book of Esther. Um, and so as we make our way, as you make your way to Hebrews 13, I want to, I want to start by celebrating and thanking everybody. Um, our missional communities uh, met for the final time, uh, most of them. Some of them are going to continue to meet throughout the summer, which is a fantastic thing. So if you're, if you're new to Center Church, missional communities are our small groups. Uh, this is where we get together and we uh, have an opportunity to gather around the word, where we pray for e- each other, and where we really develop that first line of defense for brother and sister relationships. In other words, like uh, the small group model is where we come to when we are hurting and we need help and we, need, we have problems or issues, and these are the group of people that come around us, lift us up, love us, share the word with us, and help us through whatever struggles that we are dealing with. And so uh, I really want to encourage you to continue to maintain those relationships even over the summer. I know many of our missional community leaders, they are going to work on some areas where you can come and spend time with them, but I really encourage you to continue to develop those relationships, and here's why. Those relationships are extremely important. I I don't know if you know this. Number one, we were not created to be alone. We were created to be in community, and these communities help us in our different difficult times of need. So, for example, this week, um, the Bell Home dealt with some sickness early on in the week. I kind of, you can still hear a little bit of mine. Uh, my wife went down with a stomach bug on Tuesday, and we were trying to manage and wrangle five children not feeling the best, all right? It was a very difficult season. And so on Wednesday, uh, our missional community, our small group uh, came to our house, and they had brought us a get well care package. It was beautiful. It had flowers. It had vitamins. Uh, it had cough drops. It had all these wonderful things. And they even got us a meal, a frozen meal that we could just pop in the oven and say, kids, you're on your own. Just eat something and go to bed, all right? We're not feeling well. But I want to tell you something that when, when you are in those kind of relationships, uh, you, those tight relationships means that you have to be vulnerable. And I don't know, many of you, maybe you do know me, maybe you don't, but you can kind of tell I'm a guy that I really, I, I like to be professional. Uh, I wear the suits, the suit jackets, you know, when I go out and when I work, I got the khakis on, I look like I'm going golfing all the time. Like, I like to be professional. But when you're sick, all the professionalness goes out the window, And I had to be extremely vulnerable when our MC leaders knocked on our door and said, hey, we have a gift package for you. And this is what they were met with at the door. (laughs) I mean, that's legitimately how it looked right there. It was not pretty sight. Uh, I just was not feeling good. And um, but I was so thankful. I'm like, thank you all guys helping us out so much in this time. And so I want to encourage you with that celebration of thanking my MC publicly for helping us in our time of need. I want to encourage you to continue to foster those relationships even over the summer, because the reality is the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. We need each other to finish our race. Amen. All right, let's jump into Hebrews chapter 13. The author in this letter is going to do a complete turn in the letter, right? So up until this point, Hebrews 1, all the way up to 12, we have been talking about what we call the indicatives, the statements of fact about Jesus, that he is the greater Moses, that he supersedes the priesthood office of Melchizedek, that he is the one who saves us from our sins, that his blood is the new covenant that forgives and helps us to be restored into relationship with God and to move. And so now... What the author is going to do is he's going to say, I'm building off of those indicatives to now give you in chapter 13 what we call imperatives or commands. So indicatives are statements of facts. 
Imperatives are the commands that are drawn from those facts. So, for example, let me give you a way to help you think through this. If I came to you and I said, so the man that was standing here singing, his name is Brett. And if I come to you and I give you an indicative, I say, Brett can sing. You would turn around and say what to Brett? Sing something for me, Brett. That's a command. So, based off of the truth that I just told you, Brett can sing, you're going to ask Brett to do what for you? Sing. That's a command. So the indicatives lean into the imperatives, and that's exactly what our author is going to do for us here in chapter 13. He is going to begin to give us a list of commands, things that we are to do as followers of Jesus. So, quickly to remind you, because I know that some of us uh, might be stepping into Hebrews 13 for the first time today. And if you're a guest, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here to study God's word with us, to see God work in our lives together. So let me give you four indicatives. I have them on the screen for you from Hebrews talking about how Jesus is the founder, perfecter, and author of our faith. And that when we put our trust in him, it leads us to these to the obedience of the commands that we're about to see in these next six verses. So, look with me real quick. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. The author says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Talking about the cross that Jesus endured in our place. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then lastly, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is who Jesus is. As Christians, this is what we believe about Jesus. And that belief leads us to live a life now for his glory. In other words, faith causes us, changes us to live a life surrendered to him. So. These indicatives now lead to our imperatives. Look with me in chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through 6. Let's read this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor 
forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. I want you to take away one truth from today's message. I'm going to build my entire argument and my sermon around this one truth. So if you're taking notes, this would be a good opportunity for, write, for you to write this down in case you want to study it later. Our love as Christians for Jesus motivates our obedience to Jesus. Our love for Jesus, because of the love that he has already showed us in the gospel, our love for Jesus motivates us to be obedient to him. To surrender my life completely to him. To follow and do what he commands of me through the scriptures. And this author makes this point very clear. The author says, let brotherly love continue. He says, show hospitality. He says, care for those who are in vulnerable positions. He says, honor biblical sexuality. He says, love God and treasure him more of value than any money in the world. And then he says, and this is the reason why you do these things. Because you're remembering that Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says to all of his believers this morning, I am with you right now. And not only that, you, I, the Lord is also telling us, I'm also your helper. There's nothing to fear in life because I am your helper. And so you don't even have to worry what man can do to you. Because man can't take your eternal life away. Man can't take... The relationship I have with you away because it's not built on you in the first place. It was built on my son, Jesus. So to the author, the Hebrews, they would have understood that because some of them are being thrown in prison. So, man, throw me in prison for following Jesus. Just because you can remove me from my community or you can remove me from my home doesn't mean you can remove the love of Jesus from me. So I don't even fear you when you persecute me in Jesus name or for the sake of Christ. Now. I want to argue that love motivates these thoughts. Love motivates brotherly love. Love motivates hospitality. Love motivates biblical sexuality. And you have to get this right from the beginning. Because if you miss this, then you're going to miss the entirety of the gospel. Notice what the author does not say. The author didn't put Hebrews 13 at the beginning. He didn't say, if you love your brothers well... If you show hospitality, if you honor these things, then I will love you. That's what we call legalism. And it is a, it is a danger to the church even today. It's, it's not gone. It's still very much real in many churches that they're preaching a works-based salvation. Be hospitable. Be sexually pure. Don't love money. And then God will love you. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. And that is not at all in the context of Hebrews. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it's because God loves you that he sent Jesus to take your place so that he could restore you by his grace through your faith in him. And then once you have received that love from Jesus, now you will live your life under that love umbrella. That's the opposite of legalism. But we also in today's church need to push against another false notion. And that false notion that we're, we're seeing today in many churches in our American culture is what we call antinomianism. I know. 
Makes no sense. Basically, what antinomianism says is all grace with no parameters. It's all love and no law. They say that Jesus' love cancels out our sins, which is true. But then antinomianism turns around and says, but also allows you to live your life however you want, which is false. The idea is not that, well, you've received God's love, now go and do what you want. Paul would say, this is crazy. He says, absolutely not. What are we to say? That now that grace has abounded in my life, I may go on sinning as much as I want so that grace may abound even more? He says, Paul says in a very, really strong Greek word, absolutely not. Because love has parameters attached to it. God has created us with with a certain design in mind. And so when you love God, you say, God, how can I live out my life now under the design that you have provided for me and given to me specifically in your word? In other words, love is not something that I just have towards someone. Love is something that also controls my actions towards them and others. Love is a verb. It, it has an action attached to it. And so we don't just say as Christians, well, I have Jesus' love, now I can do whatever I want. In fact, it's the opposite. Now that I have Jesus' love, I'm asking God, what should I do with my life? What do you want for me? And he's given you a very clear answer in Scripture. It tells you exactly how to live. The author of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. There you go. You want to know the parameters for biblical relationships? Let brotherly love continue. Be hospitable. Remember those who are struggling. Be sexually pure. And don't make the idol of money something that builds a throne in your heart over Jesus. So maybe an example to help you think through this. I like to give illustrations to help you understand. I'm about to go next week. My family and I were headed up to South Carolina to uh, perform a wedding for one of our, um, she was sixth grade when we first met her, and uh, she was in my youth ministry for four and a half years, and then she just really grew into our family, um, and so she just graduated college, and now she's going to get married, and so she asked me to come, and the family, every single child is in the wedding, um, I'm, I got a part of the wedding, and so we are going to be driving for about eight days to and from, and doing uh, a wedding in South Carolina. And when I get to this wedding ceremony, when they say their vows, they're going to make a statement to one another, right? They're going to say what we call their I do's. And their I do's, this statement of fact, comes with both positive and negative parameters. So when they turn to each other and they say, I do, I do. I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. I, I do these things. In that love for one another, they're also making a statement. They're making positive parameters and negative parameters to one another. So, for example, in the positive, they're saying to each other, when I say I do, I'm going to love you through both the good times and the bad times. In my premarital counseling, I tell them over and over again that marriage is work. Disney got it wrong. It's not happily ever after. It's work. And you're going to go through good times and you're going to go through bad times. But the I do makes a covenant where I'm going to work with you through the good times and the bad times. I'm going to, when they say I do, I'm going to stay beside you in sickness and in health. 
When I say I do, I'm going to give myself completely to you, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. These are all positives that come out of my statement, I do. That are going to control the actions that I have right now with that particular person. But there's also some negatives that come with my I do, isn't there? I am going to forsake all other men and women at this point. I'm not going to abandon you when times get hard. I'm going to know that when we get married, I'm going to have to make sacrifices for our marriage for each other because of our love for each other. So the love there has positive and negative parameters attached to it. And the idea here that I'm trying to show you is that the same holds true when we follow Jesus. That when we truly put our love in Christ, when we put our faith in Him and we love Him, He gives us parameters for how we are to live our lives. He says, this is how you're going to conform into the image. This is how you're going to, as, as uh, um, the Three Circles Evangelism Task Book says, uh, how you're going to recover and pursue God's design for your life. So as you grow in your love for Jesus, you're going to grow in recovering and pursuing God's design for you. The idea here is that our love for Jesus puts us into a posture of surrender, a posture of submission. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to obey what I tell you to do. So I want to show you five areas of obedience in this text. I'm going to quickly teach them to you. And then we're going to ask ourselves five questions from this text to our lives. So number one, number one, our love causes us to show brotherly and sisterly love to God's people. So that's number one. Let brotherly love continue. So as I love Jesus more, the more that that love spills out to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the more that they love Jesus, the more that their love spills out to me. And so we need to let this brotherly love continue. The idea here is that when people look to see how we love each other, then they're going to know and see a visible symbol of how much Jesus can love them. Do you know that the way that we interact with each other shows whether we believe in the gospel or not? Whether I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you or not? Whether I'm willing to find peace with you or not? Whether I'm going to be able to maintain unity with you or not? The reality is that the gospel, as we love Jesus, it filters itself down into the way that we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, from number one, Love pours out into the community of believers. We serve one another. We help one another. We love one another. We deal with one another. Let me tell you something. Uh, I heard, a, I heard a, a pastor one time say that uh, a lady came up to him and said, I would never go to a church ever. And he said, why not? He said, because it's filled with hypocrites. And he's like, yes, but so is the world. So come on and slither on in with us. The idea here is that she sees something that's broken in the church and she thinks that that's a direct assault on the gospel. But what would our churches look like in evangelism and missions if we actually carried the gospel that we believe into our church family relationships? You think that would be a powerful testimony of the goodness of the gospel? You should all be shaking your head yes, because I believe it would. Number two, we show hospitality to others. 
Our love for Jesus pours itself out into being hospitable people. That we are willing to welcome people into our homes. That our homes are places of ministry. And we welcome people into our lives. We welcome, even if the Holy Spirit leads you, welcoming strangers. Because it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'll talk about that in just a moment. The angels unawares. But the idea here is that love pours itself out even to strangers, even to people. It's willing to say, I'm opening my home, I'm opening my stuff for you because I care about you as a person and your welfare and your well-being. Number three, love causes us to care for those who are being persecuted for their faith. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We remind people, the persecuted church, which you and I have really never experienced here in our American context, but there are brothers and sisters across the globe who are experiencing persecution for their faith right now. And our task as their brothers and sisters under the gospel is to remind them of the presence of Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you. Remind them that they can find help and comfort in the Lord. I, the Lord, am your helper. There's nothing to fear. What can man do to you? It is our job to to pour out to those who are being persecuted for their faith and saying to them, persevere, endure, carry on, and know that we got your back. I was reading a story um, by Paul Miller. I kind of think of the, I can't think of the church family in this way. Paul Miller, he's a, he was a younger brother. And when he was in school, he was getting picked on by some bullies. But there was another Miller family member, and he was the big brother. And when big brother Miller found out that Paul was being bullied by little people, big brother Miller was not a small guy. Apparently he was like a linebacker type guy from, on the football team, and he was like a junior in high school, and the man was massive. And so he came, he came to those, uh, those people who were bullying his brother, and he said to them, if you continue to pick on my little brother, you, you, I'm taking it as a direct assault against me, and you are picking on me, and I will deal with you. Now, I'm not saying as Christians that's our response to other people who are being persecuted. Like to, to our brothers and sisters in front, like, oh, you're going to mess with my brother? Then I'm going to come. But it is our response to say that's the type of unity that we should have as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. That when one of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. That when one of us is being persecuted, all of us are feeling the persecution. That when one of us is suffering, all of us are suffering. And what guides that type of feeling? Love for Jesus. Love for Jesus pours itself out into love to where I look at you and you look at me as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number four, love conforms us to a biblical sexuality. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The idea here is our love for Jesus puts us in a posture of surrender that says, I am going to die to myself. Jesus says, pick up your cross and I'm going to live for Jesus and follow me. And this even includes our sexual appetites. God helps us to flee from sexual immorality and cling to his design for sex. Now notice that this is not just for the married folks. It's for the singles too. Sexually immoral, I think, is particularly talking to single people. And adulterous is specifically talking to married people. That the idea here is that as we grow in our love for God, we begin to conform ourselves to God's vision and plan for biblical sexuality. A Christian can't say, well, I'm going to love God and then live however sexually I want to. 
The idea is we all put our sexual appetites under the authority of Jesus. We surrender them to Jesus and we live biblically sexual lives no matter where you are right now, whether you're single or married or you're a young person getting ready to one day go off into the world and maybe get married or stay single. I don't know your future. Although I will say that the church has done a very poor job talking about the gift of singleness. Because it is a gift. But the idea here is that we are to conform ourselves to biblical sexuality. And I think we need to understand that because we live in a very hyper-sexualized culture. That is pushing an agenda on us that is completely antithetical to God's word. And it's everywhere. Everywhere. God says, if you love me, then you fight against those and you surrender them to my word. Lastly, love causes us to break free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money, he says, and be content with what you have. Now, notice here, he doesn't say, keep your life free from money. He says, keep your life free from the what? The love of money. Money is actually a good thing. It helps us. Currency is not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. But the problem is, is that money has the ability to create idols and love in our hearts. It has the ability for us to cause us to want more. And in that, as we grow in our security of our money, of our values, what ends up happening is, instead of being content, we turn and we say, I actually don't really need Jesus because I have all the money in the world. Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you end up losing your what? Soul. The idea here is that our love for Jesus makes his presence in our lives more valuable than any presence of money will be able to do. So the idea here is that we are to love Jesus more than we love money. So from this now, what are we going to do with it? The idea here is that God is trying to make us more like Jesus. We put our faith in. So when you read these, do you see Jesus showing continuously brother love to his disciples? Oh, yeah. Think of Peter. Some of you might think relate really well to Peter. But what does Jesus do to Peter? Over and over again, he's continuously loving Peter. Does Jesus show hospitality to strangers? Mm-hmm. He's the most hospitable man on the planet. In fact, hospitality sometimes just flowed out of him. The woman who was bleeding, she just touched his robe and power left from him. And he's like, power just left from me. And she was scared. And he's like, no, you don't understand. That's who I am. Love just naturally, healing just naturally flows out of me to you. And so then he turns to her and says, what? Go and sin no more. Did Jesus remember those who were the most vulnerable in society? Of course. I think Jesus understood the idea of sexual morality, even when he was sing- even as a single person. No sin was ever found in Jesus. And you definitely know that Jesus loved the Father more than he ever loved money. Over and over, what did the Son say? I don't even have a place to lay my head. But that doesn't matter because my God, the Father, was more valuable. The idea here is that when you want to, when we decide in our hearts, now let me rephrase that, when God ignites our faith and we love Jesus, we ask ourselves the very pointed question, Jesus, how do I become more like you? He says, very simple. Follow my commands. Live the way that I've already told you to live, and then you will be like me. You see, their love for Jesus in this text, and our love for Jesus in this text, causes them and us to bear fruit. So here's my question. 
What type of fruit do you bear as a Christian? As we look through these five fruits, ask yourself, how do I do and measure myself and examine myself in light of the fruits that I see here? The reality is... Not all of you are going to be dealing with the same fruit. Some of you in this room might be struggling with sexual impurities. Some of you in this room might be struggling with greed and the love of money. Some of you in this room might really struggle with being hospitable. But the question is, we should take a true moment to examine ourselves today and ask ourselves the question, does my fruit reflect my faith? That's your next question. If you want to take notes, that's what I would write down. Does my fruit reflect my faith? faith the answer is faith bears fruit faith bears fruit so that's your next note faith bears fruit so let's look at this as a text to measure our faith today jesus taught in matthew 7 if you want to know where i'm getting the fruit analogy jesus taught in matthew 7 he said this beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them he says by their what fruits Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them, the false prophets, by their fruit. So I think implied in this text, Jesus is saying, you will know your faith by looking at your fruit. It has to be implied. So what does your fruit say about your faith today? So I'm going to ask these five. I just give you five lists of things in this text. Now I'm going to give you five questions on those same things. And I want you to ask yourself the question. Is the fruit of my faith answering these questions an indicator that I'm a healthy or a diseased tree? Am I a healthy tree bearing good fruit or am I a diseased tree bearing either no fruit or really bad fruit? And then ask God, by His grace, His steadfast love, to either encourage you or to change you this morning. Question one. Does my love for Jesus reflect in my love for the church family? Does my love for Jesus reflect in the way that I love my church family? Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35... That the world will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. So how do you love God's church? Do you want to be with it? Do you want to be in relationships with it? Do you want to serve? Do you sacrifice yourself for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you speak the truth with grace so that your brothers and sisters in Christ will finish and run the race? Do, you, do we have a lot that encourages and, and, and a love that encourages and exhorts one another to continue to persevere in the faith? Or is your church experience selfish, self-absorbed, and unwilling to find peace with others? It breaks my heart. Parents, listen up. It breaks my heart when you see kids running from the church because you've badmouthed her for so long, they say, why would I ever want to be a part of something like that? When I was a lead pastor at a church in South Carolina, I saw this over and over again with some of our older saints. They couldn't understand why their kids never came to church. And as I got to know these older saints, I realized it's because you really hate the church. Everything is a complaint. Everything is mad. Everything is not your way. So if it's not your way, you're just going to cause so much division. I'm like, why would your children ever want to be a part of something like that? 
Man, our, our family, we, we bring our children, we want them to love the church. That they can't, they get sad when we can't be here with you guys. So, does your love for Jesus reflect in the way that you love his church? Or is it just something you're checking off? Or is it just something that's supposed to only meet your needs? Number two, does my love for Jesus reflect in my hospitality? Does it reflect in the way that I'm hospitable? Are you using your home as a place of ministry? In this time period, inns were a very unsafe place to be. They were very not very clean, they were very low maintenance, and there was a lot of bad things that would happen at an inn. And so when people would go and travel in this time period, they would have to rely on their church brothers and sisters to show them hospitality so that they wouldn't have to go to the inn to a very unsafe and unhealthy place. And even some of them, some of them would even open their homes, but led by the spirit to possibly strangers. And so this is talking when he says, uh, remember those who are, or excuse me. Uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think he's taking us back to Abraham. And so when Abraham is in his tent, he looks out and he sees three guys up on a hill and he runs up to them in his town. And he says, hey, come into my house. I'm going to make you lunch, whatever you need. He ends up finding out two of them are angels. One is the, 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 uh, the, the spirit of the Lord. And they say, go and do as you have said. And he goes in and he makes this big feast for them and he brings them down. And then he begins to intercede with the Lord on that time to not destroy Sodom for its sin. I think the idea here, though, is very simple. Being led by the Spirit, are you opening your homes to others? Is your home a place of ministry? Parents, your home ought to be a place of ministry because that's where your children are. And your children are your first and foremost mission field and then the others. But if you don't have any children or if you have children that have friends, is your home the place where people come to be ministered to with the gospel. I love this about Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was one of the greatest minds ever to live the earth. And his children would always tell this story that my daddy was always welcoming to my friends. When my friends had questions or when they were struggling in life, they always wanted to be like, do you think I could talk to uh, Mr. Schaefer through this? And Mr. Schaefer would sit with them for 50 minutes and hear their stories and hear their struggles and hear their complaints. And then the last 10 minutes, because he was so incredibly gifted and smart, he would fill all the blanks in with the gospel. And people would leave their change over and over again because Schaefer saw his house as a place of ministry. Do you see your house that way? Are you inviting your lost neighbors over for dinner? Are you inviting those people from your house over for dinner so that you can get to know them and you can show them the beauty and the power of the gospel in your home and in words to their lives? My question is this, is your, is your home your kingdom with a moat wrapped around it or a place where you bring people in to share with them and show them the kingdom of God? God has given every, almost every one of us, I'm pretty sure, a home in here. Use it for the mission. Be hospitable. Open it up. Does your love for Jesus... Number three, does your love for Jesus cause you to care for the persecuted church? Does your love for Jesus cause you to care about the persecuted church? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
As you recall, this church is being persecuted for their faith and some of them are losing their homes and some of them are even going to prison for their faith. And the author says, remember them. Remember them in a way that you almost feel like you are there with them in those moments. Church, do we even pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters across the globe in our homes or in our, even in our own services? We live in a very comfortable Christianity. There are people all over this world following Jesus that cost them their lives. People, brothers and sisters, that you don't even know their names might have to be right now hiding in order to worship Jesus because if they're found out, they'll be thrown in prison or even killed. Do we even care? Do you pray for the persecuted church around the world? Are you praying for their deliverance, but moreover their perseverance and endurance? Are we as a church even thinking about ways we can alleviate their suffering? Or are we so consumed with our comforts that we no longer remember those around the world who don't have the same freedoms that we do as Christians living in America? I was speaking to a friend of mine. His name is Abraham, which is not his real name because he lives in a persecuted place. And I was asking Abraham, Abraham, how do I pray for you in your situation? And he said, I want you to pray two things, Jeremy. Number one, pray that we would endure and persevere in the midst of it. So that's easy. I can pray that for you. I said, he said, number two, though. Pray that persecution would continue. What? Sorry, I don't think I heard you say that. He said, Pray that it would continue. I said, why? He says, because through persecution, God is using it to grow his church and to purify it. I sat there shocked when he said that. Persecution is being used by God to grow the church and to keep it pure. Because it cost you a lot to follow Jesus in those cultures. So does our love for Jesus cause us to care for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted across the globe? To remember them who are in prison. To remember those who are mistreated. Because when they are suffering as brothers and sisters in Christ, united with the gospel, we're suffering too. Number Question four. Does your love for Jesus cause you to flee sexual immorality? Sexual sin is a real drain and temptation in the church and outside the church. Throughout scripture, we see you have sexual sins of all nature from Genesis all the way through. The question that we're asking ourselves is, are we setting boundaries and protections as single people and married people to flee from the sexual temptations that come our way? To flee from the lust of the flesh and the sexual desires that we have? To surrender our lives completely to Christ, even which includes our sexual proclivities. People who say, why can't I be a Christian and still feed my sexual appetites don't truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus followed God all the way to the cross. He surrendered his own life for you and me. And when we see the truth of that gospel, then we should be willing to surrender our own life for him. But following Jesus doesn't mean we give up only on our sexual immoralities. We don't just renounce only sexual sin. We renounce all sin and follow Jesus. 
In other words, this text in verses in chapter in verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all of you. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He is telling us that we are to die to ourselves and live for Jesus, including in our sexuality. Surrender everything to Christ. That's what is required of a believer. So do you say, according to that great hymn, all to Jesus, I surrender all to him. I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live all to Jesus. I surrender humbly at his feet. I bow worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. Is that what your heart sings in the midst of a hypersexualized society? My last question. Does your love for Jesus cause you to value him over possessions? Is Jesus the most valuable thing you own? The most valuable person you own? Money has an ability to become something we idolize and cherish and love because it has a power over us. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. But a love for Jesus puts money in its proper place where we renounce greed, the love of money, and we find contentment in what God has given us to steward. Look at your finances. Go home and look at your finances. Look at how you deal with money. Look at your life to see if money controls you or if it's something that... You find satisfaction is and that you need to get more or is it put in its proper place because Jesus is far more precious and valuable than it. Your love of money will be observant in how you earn it, how you spend it and what you do with it in terms of stewardship. I heard an old pastor once say, show me your bank account and I'll tell you what type of faith you have. Now, we aren't going to do that here at Center Church Brenham. But if that statement made you mad, that might be an insinuation of your love of money. But the question is, keep your life free from the love of money, he says, and be content with what God has given you. The question is, is Jesus' presence in your life more valuable than money? Let me say it in a different way. Is Jesus of more value than all your valuables? So I'm going to invite the team up and I'm going to ask you, how do you respond to a message like this? If these questions have convicted you this morning, perhaps you're realizing that you really don't have a true relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you haven't put your full trust in his work because these marks of a true Christian are not a staple in your life. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you don't wrestle with it. I'm just saying you don't even care about it. And you realize in this moment that you don't even care about the way that God's called you to live. And you're realizing in that moment that the law is convicting you to say you are separated from God and you need someone. And his name is Jesus. And today he is offering himself to you. You put your faith in Christ and he will begin to develop these character traits in you. That's why Jesus is in the business today of changing lives for his glory. And so if the more, this morning you're sitting here like, Jeremy, I'm realizing that. 
I don't have these true characteristics and marks of a Christian. Maybe I'm not safe. Maybe I'm wrestling with this. Then what I'm asking you to do is to be bold enough today after service is to come and to speak with me or Pastor Kyle, one of the other pastors on staff, or come and speak to one of our partners and say, today I am wrestling with my salvation. What must I do to be saved? And we will show you how to repent and be baptized and to turn and follow Jesus. And let me tell you something. When you begin to follow Jesus, it will change your life for the positive forever. If you don't believe me, ask for the testimony of people in this room who have been walking with Jesus. But number two, maybe you're sitting in this room and you're realizing salvation is not your issue. But rather following an obedience to these five callings is a real challenge for you. Maybe you've never even heard it this way before. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, like, I'm really strong or one or two or three of them, but there are, there are others in here that I'm not fully surrendered to Christ. That I have a problem showing brotherly love to the church family. That I have people in here that I've, I, I still have division with. And I'm, I, I'm really struggling to reconcile with them. Or maybe you're sitting here and you are held into some type of captivity to sexual sin. And you just don't think there's a way to get out of it. Or maybe you're here and you're like, no, I really do love my money more than Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, Center Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. We just don't want you to stay there very long. In other words, we want to help you. We want to help you become the man, the woman, or the child that God has called you to be by faith in Jesus. In other words, we are here for you. And if you're hurting and you're struggling in some of these areas, we want to come alongside and help you. As a family. Because we want to see you run the race that God has called you to run. We want to see you be the Christian man, woman, or child that God has called you to be. And I want you to know that we're here for you. But you need to say, am I bold enough to come and ask for the help that I need? So here's what I want everybody to do. I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to give you a few moments to pray. Pray that God would speak to you through this text. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you see areas of growth, I want you to thank him for those areas of growth that you're seeing him work in you. But if there's areas in your life where you say, I'm really struggling here, then ask him to fix it through the power of his word, through the power of his spirit, and through the beauty of his church. Ask Him to help you to be fully surrendered to Him. To live your life for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. This is your time to pray. Father, I don't know how you're working along this room, but I pray for boldness today. I pray for boldness for us in, our, in this room to really truly examine our hearts, to really see, are we loving the church the way that Christ loves the church? Are we hospitable? Do we care about the persecuted church across the world? 
Do we maintain our sexual purity? And do we value Jesus above everything else, including money? Lord, remind us today that your presence is with us even in the now. You said, I will not, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Lord, when we come to you and cry out to you, because there's areas maybe we're looking at here and we go, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not the greatest at these areas. I'm struggling in some of these areas. That we would look to you as the true helper that you are. The Lord is my helper. And he will help all of us to become the men and women he's called us to be, but also to help us to finish this race for his glory, for your glory. And one of the ways that you've done that is you've done that by giving us this group of brothers and sisters to come come alongside and lift up our arms when we're weary and broken. And so, Father, I pray that for boldness again, as somebody is ready to receive Jesus, that they would be bold enough to come to Pastor Kyle or myself, one of our partners, and say, today I'm ready to put my faith in this Jesus, and I'm ready to begin to recover and pursue his design for my life. But at the same time, for all of us in this room that wrestle with sin, may we be bold enough to come and say, I need you to help me. Help me to run the race that God has called me to run. That I'm not okay, and I'm recognizing I'm not okay. But Center Church loves me enough to say, I don't want you to stay there. We want to help you through whatever you're going through. May we be that kind of people that cherish the gospel above all. Pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.